Good morning to you. Last week we surveyed Ezra 1 to 3, and we centered our discussion around the Magnificent Seven. And so today, in keeping with our 60s cinematic experience, we shall survey the Dirty Dozen of Ezra chapter 4. Sadly, our time together today will not have Ernest Bergnine or Charles Brosnan or Donald Sutherland or even Lee Marvin, but the Dirty Dozen of Ezra 4 chronicles the way Satan seeks to stymie the work of God by discouraging, disparaging, and disrupting God's people. Now, sometimes saints think that spiritual warfare is something new to, to me and you, but it is not. Any time that God is at work in this world, Satan is skulking, seeking to stymie that work. Satan never wants God's work to prosper, and so God's workers, he will pester. Turn with me to Ezra 4 which is on page 495 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Page 495, Ezra, chapter 4. And let's discover the dirty dozen ways Satan attempts to pour sand in the gears to grind God's work to a halt in this world. As you turn in the Word of the Lord to Ezra, chapter 4, on page 495, let's turn our hearts to the Lord of that Word. Father, we invite you this morning that you would please speak through your word, through this single slender chapter of a book that we don't often enough overturn the very truths therein. We pray that today you would arm us, that you would show us, that you would reveal to us the ways the enemy tries to stymie the work of God by discouraging, disparaging, and disrupting the workers of God. And may we not have a morbid fascination with Satan, nor an unhealthy fear. May we have a respect. We are mindful that the archangel, when he encountered Satan, just said, the Lord rebuke you. At the same time, may we remember that we are more than overcomers by those who are in Christ. Help us to hold the tension between understanding that the devil is like a roaring lion, seeking those he may devour, and that he comes subtly disguising himself, masquerading himself as an angel of light and yet he is also a defeated and vanquished foe. So Lord, help us to be aware that we would not fall into the pit that he would dig for us. Help us to see that there is indeed nothing new under the sun, and that which we face is no different from that which any other has faced throughout the ages. Bring the word to life this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The word of God says in Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returning exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Esardadon, the king of Assyria who brought us here. See, they were returned peoples from their own lands who were put in and repatriated in the northern territories by the Assyrians. We'll talk more about that later. But Zerubbabel, who was the leader of the Jews who returned in the first return uh, from Babylonian captivity, but Zerubbabel, uh, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord. And the God of Israel, as Cyrus the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land, those that were already there that had said, we want to help you, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And then they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius of Persia and in the reign of Ahasuerus. In the beginning of his reign, well, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then in the days of Artaxerxes, uh, Bilam and uh, Mithradath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And Rehum the commander and uh, Shemeshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum the commander, 
Shimshai the scribe, the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Suma, of Susa, and that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest in the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to King Artaxerxes. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have gone to Jerusalem and they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. And they are finishing the walls and repairing its foundations. Now, be it known to the king that this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished. They will not pay tribute, custom, or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired going to hurt your bottom line if you let them do this. Verse 14, now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. These are such good guys, aren't they? Therefore, we send to inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers and you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city, Jerusalem, is a rebellious city and hurtful to kings and provinces and that sedition was stirred up in it from old and that was why it was laid to waste. And we make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will have no possessions beyond the river. And so the king sent an answer, verse 17, to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and a search has been made and it has been found that this city... Jerusalem from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over, been over Jerusalem who ruled beyond the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men are to cease and this city is not to be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. And then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, the first thing that we need to understand this morning is this, that God's people doing God's work will encounter God's adversaries. God's people doing God's work will encounter God's adversaries. You can bank on that. I want you to look at the very first verse of our text. The Bible says, now when the adversaries, not the friends, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, the, the two main tribes who returned to resettle and restore the land and the worship of God, when the adversaries of God's people heard that they had returned and they were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. That's when the things got not so nice. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because our Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 5, this is what He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, on the account of Jesus, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the people of God have adversaries. They had them in Ezra's day. Jesus said, we're going to have them in our day. All right? Why? And Jesus tells us the answer to that because this world is not our home. Jesus explained that in John chapter 15. You might want to write that next to Ezra 4. John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were worldly and lined yourself up with all the things the world loves, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, I chose you out of this world, the world hates you. Now, in Ezra, when did the enemies, the adversaries, attack? When they heard... God's people were about to do God's work. 
They didn't attack when the Israelites landed. They didn't attack when they started building their little homes. They started to attack when? When the people of God began to do the work of God to the glory of God in a world in enmity to God. I want you to look again at verse 1. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, all the miserable mischief of the malevolent one was stirred up in that moment. Friends, have you read the Bible? Have you surveyed church history? No project that seeks to honor God by, by his, uh, the advancement of His will in this world has ever gone unopposed by Satan and his minions. Opportunity and opposition usually go hand in hand in any worthy activity. The greater the opportunity, friend, the greater the opposition from God's adversaries will often be. I want you to write 1 Corinthians 16.9 in your Bibles next to verse 1 of chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, the Apostle Paul informs the church at Corinth that a wide door for effective work has opened for me in Ephesus, and there are many adversaries. A wide door for effective work for the glory of Jesus has opened to Paul, and there are many adversaries. Now so, from Ezra 4.1 all the way to the end of Nehemiah, we're going to be journeying through these books, there is continual conflict from chapter 4 on all the way through the book of Nehemiah because if you give yourself to the work of God, you will experience opposition from the enemies of God. That's how it works. Now, what is surprising is that Satan's first attack did not seem like an attack at all because our enemy is smart. It, it all seemed like, at first glance, if the Jews were not paying attention, it seemed like an attempt to help advance the work of God. But it wasn't. It was a trick. It was a trap. You see, Satan is subtle. He is just as willing to come as an angel of light as he is to be a roaring lion. Whatever it takes to stop the work of God, he will try, and he could turn on a dime so that it's sometimes hard to see what is happening. The Bible encourages us to be discerning or we'll be deceived. Ephesians 6.1 warns us of the wiles of the devil. That old serpent, the Bible says, is more crafty than any beast of the field. He speaks with a, a forked tongue and it delivers half-truths and outright lies. And so it should be no surprise that the very first gambit of the deceiver is point two today. Satan will try to trap us by fine-sounding arguments and unholy compromises. But we must be uncompromising. Let me say that again. Satan will try to trap us by fine-sounding but unholy compromises. But we must be uncompromising. Now look at the Scriptures again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, let's be honest. To modern ears, the rejection of, of, of others offering to help rebuild the temple of God, it sounds intolerant, doesn't it? It sounds ungracious, doesn't it? It sounds a bit bigoted. How dare they be so exclusive? These people say they worship God just like us and we ought to let them in in this deal. Well, let's study our history for a moment. Who were these adversaries? Well, the Assyrians came and they swept into the ten northern tribes of Israel and, and captured the Israelites, the northern tribes, in 722 B.C. You remember that? Okay. And then what did they do? They, let, they took everybody who was valuable away. Everybody who was smart. Everybody who was learned. If you were a priest, if you were a scribe, if you were in government, if you were important, if you had talent. And they left sort of the, the, the hobos and the povo to stay. The people that, that posed no threat to anybody because they never did anything when society worked. 
They kept them there. And then they took conquered peoples from all the other places who they thought could be a threat and they moved them in. And those people would then uh, intermingle and they would intermarry and they would create a, a mongrel group who is not Jewish or, or, or Latvian or whatever group was conquered, but they would, they would be an amalgamum of the riffraff and it would be easy to govern those people because they'd have no power source. All their leaders were gone. Does that make sense? All right, so that's who those people were. And so this practice by the Assyrians was politically shrewd. It was designed to destabilize. It was designed so you could have a far-flung empire of various peoples who would then pay taxes and not rise up against you. The best and brightest would be in government service, taken away in captivity, leaving just the weak and the helpless and other people from other places that you've moved in. All right, so 2 Kings 17 2 Kings 17 tells us that this mixed multitude in the northern tribes was given an opportunity to know the one true God. A priest was sent from the south because the south hadn't been conquered yet. The Babylonians will conquer the, the south, but in the north had been conquered. And so a priest went up to try and teach them the law of the Lord. And, and the Bible tells us that all they did is they added Jehovah to the long list of other gods they already worshipped from all over the world. Now here's the problem. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God that we are to serve Him exclusively and not synchronistically, where you merge two or three faiths together to make a new faith that isn't biblical. And so the Bible teaches that polluted worship is not worship. And, and that diluted allegiance is not allegiance. And so 2 Kings tells us that this northern amalgamum uh, that became the Samaritan scene in Jesus' day had, had corrupted themselves uh, by the mixing of the one true faith with all these other little faiths and different faiths and false faiths. And so Satan shrewdly wants the workers of God land to do the work of God. Satan shrewdly has these unhelpful northern helpers come. And there's this, this is an elaborate ruse on Satan's part to try to, at the very beginning, pollute the temple of God. And so the Israelites were absolutely correct in being resolute and saying, no, I cannot accept your sinful, synchronistic help. And you want to remember, why was the tribes taken away? Why, were the, what, what, why was the reason that they were taken away to Babylonian captivity in the first place? They were taken away because of the sin of idolatry, worshiping something other than God. Okay, now think about this. If Satan would have succeeded, if the people of God were not discerning and instead were deceived, you would have had the rebuilding of the house of God by people who weren't worshipers of the one true God. And the very foundation of that new temple would be idolatry. And that would lead to another well, another discipline, perhaps another captivity. So it was critical that they not accept this unhelpful help. And so, friends, you need to understand that not all help is helpful. So last week we learned that God can use pagans and He could use pagan kings and, and He could use the pagans around us and, and He could use backslidden Christians and God can take all kinds of help, but you need to understand also that not all help is always helpful. So you can't listen to last Sunday's sermon in isolation. Yeah, God used those people. That's great. And yet here today, they said, in this area, you can't use that help. This is different. We're not just paint-by-the-numbers Christians. We have to think. He gave us a brain. We worship the Lord with all of our mind, our soul, our strength, and our spirit. So the Israelites were right in rejecting the help that was not actually helpful. Satan is going to try to sometimes trap us by subtleties and fine-sounding arguments to get us to compromise where we are told to be uncompromising. Do you know the difference? of what's a line that there's room to bend and where's a line we can never bend. Now this must have been a super tempting offer. If you're these 50,000 Israelites who come back, you've got very little to offer, and here are these people willing to help you, and they've got money, they've got funds on offer, they've got labor, they live right there, they can bring stones and they can help, and they know the, the terrain. Uh, most of what the Israelites needed was already on the ground amongst the Samaritans. It would be faster, it would be cheaper, it would be easier to compromise. But in some areas, God's people are supposed to be uncompromising. And it's going to take discernment to distinguish in those difficult, difficult delicate moments. But discern we must. Which is why Hebrews 5.14 says this. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The mature believer, by constantly poring over Scripture, is able to see something that someone else would go, this is a wonderful opportunity, and go, no, this is a trick. This is a trap. This is an unbiblical, unhealthy, ungodly compromise. And I'm going to tell you, 
If you're just a bottle-fed baby believer, you'll probably get taken in by many of these tricks until you've had enough mouse traps catch your toes and your fingers. But mature disciples who eat the meat of Scripture can look at a situation from the whole light of God. They say, well, what does Leviticus say? And what does Ezra say? And, and what does Habakkuk say? And what does Jesus say? Instead of just always having to lean on these kind of a vague appeals to grace and love. Because sometimes there's other Scriptures that we need to think about even as we pursue grace and love. And sometimes God calls us as a people of God to hold the line, to draw a line, to make a distinction. To say, I can go this far, but I cannot go any farther. Not because I don't love someone, but because I love Jesus so much and He won't let me do that or it will dishonor Him. Friends, faithfulness is not arrogance and not every compromise is biblically authorized. Now, Israel was to be a set-apart nation. Uh, there was a way for the foreigner and the stranger to come into the fold, but it was by their decision to renounce iniquity and worship Jehovah exclusively. There was a way for anyone to come in, but it had to be God's way that they came in. They were not to have a wavering allegiance of convenience, but an exclusive fidelity to the one true God. And, and you see this again and again in the Bible. You remember what Joshua said? He said, you must choose. Each of you must choose this day whom you will serve can't have both. It's always the people of God are always trying to have both. We want Jehovah when we're in trouble, and we want Baal and Asherah and Molech and those other things to cover those bases just in case as well. So what is true for Old Testament saints is definitely true for New Testament saints too. If you turn for a second, leave your finger in Ezra, go to the New Testament, go to 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 on page 1229. 2 Corinthians 6.14, page 12.29. The Old Testament saint was told to be discerning or be deceived. Look at the whole counsel of God. There isn't Every compromise is not okay. Some of them we cannot do. And what does the Bible say to New Testament saints in 2 Corinthians 6.14 on page 12.29? It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For that partnership, what partnership has righteousness to do with lawlessness? Or fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now skip down to verse 17. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Now, I want you to understand that separation is not the same as isolation. Okay? We are to be the light of the world. We are not to hide our basket in our little holy clubs, Bible studies, and churches. But, even as there's real contact with the world, we're not supposed to be contaminated by the world from that contact. There is, there is both separation from, and yet not isolation from, the world. Jesus was a friend to sinners. He had people that other people wouldn't be near in His circle. But He was never tainted by their sin. Isn't that a tough thing to walk in 2018 in this fallen world? And it's something Jesus walked. And He's our example how He can still come next to and alongside and live in the world and be salt and light in the world and yet maintain a distinction between holy and unholy within those dealings. We can do this because Jesus did this and He set the example. And it's the requirement of believers. Now I'm going to tell you when you have a line, when there's a line, when you go, I can be with you, and I love you, and I care about you, but I can't be in this or that or this situation or endorse this activity. In 2018, that's going to sound intolerant. That's going to sound ungracious. That's going to sound narrow-minded. But I'm telling you, it's biblically solid. And you're going to need to know where the lines are, that you can go this far and no farther. Not because you don't love them, but because you love Jesus first and foremost. When the Samaritans were rejected... <laughs> Their initial helpfulness, let's help you build this, turned into 90 years of open, flagrant hostility. 90 years of hostility starts in Ezra chapter 4 with the rejection of the unbiblical compromise that was proposed. You're going to have from the days of Zerubbabel all the way through the end of Nehemiah, you're going to have unending <laughs> attack. That's a hard truth in 2018. That we should love everyone, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily yoked to everyone. 
And when we set up a biblical boundary, you need to expect flack from those who disagree. Which brings us to point three today. Satan will try emotional traps to thwart us from the work. Satan will try emotional traps to thwart us from his work. Look at verse 4. They didn't get their way. They didn't get the unholy compromise. They're mad. They're coming at them. Verse 4, Then the people of the land, the Samaritan people, discouraged the people of Judah. If you couldn't do what you shouldn't do, then I'm going to try and make you not do what you're supposed to do. I'm going to discourage you. One of the best ways to stop saints is to discourage them. Did you know that? One of the best ways to stop a congregation from what God is calling them is to discourage them. And let me tell you, Satan is a master discourager, isn't he? Satan knows in Proverbs 17.22 that a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones, and the bones are what keep us up. You can just knock somebody over, you can knock a church over, you can knock a family over. If you take away (laughs) that upbeat spirit we have in Jesus. The Bible says Satan comes to to steal, kill, and destroy. He knows if if he can steal our joy, it will kill our enthusiasm, and it will usually die off the work that we were trying to do together, isn't it? Be wary of the emotional traps the devil is trying to get you to dwell on. What is the narrative of your mind saying when you turn off that light at night and when you're in traffic and you have time on your hands? If all you can see, if all you can hear in your head are the discouragements, you need to go to the Lord and ask Him for encouragement. If all you can see are the challenges, you need to ask God to help you see the opportunities. If all you can see are the failings, you need to remind Jesus to remind you of the many victories. Saints have sung this little ditty since 1897. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. My, 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 my mother-in-law, who's a, a pretty good example, will say, friends, it's amazing what praising can do. You can sit in Zimbabwe under a dictator with dirty water and people dying, and you can have joy... You've met Joyce because it's amazing what praising can do. Hmm. Which is why Satan will try every emotional trick and trap to try to thwart God's work. And if that doesn't work, he will move from from discouragement to straight-up intimidation. That brings us to point four. Satan has a whole arsenal of tools. Compromise didn't work. Discouragement didn't work. Let's try straight-up intimidation. The back half of verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. That's our fourth point. Satan will try various threats, various threats to intimidate us from the work. Satan will try various threats, not necessarily things he follows through on, but he will try various threats to intimidate us. The people of Judah were made too afraid to build. And so the work stopped over fear. Now, Satan knows there is no greater paralyzer for the average person than to be paralyzed by fear. Fear makes us stop what we ought to be doing. Fear keeps people from even starting what God has clearly told them to get about doing. Which is why Scripture says we're to only fear God. That's it. We're never to fear man. We're to fear God. There's a reverential fear that leads to obedience. There's a reverential fear that leads to holiness. But when we fear man, when we feel feel failure, when we fear public opinion, that leads to paralysis, doesn't it? Big difference. Instead of progress, we can have paralysis. And the question is, whom are you fearing? And that will determine whether you have paralysis or progress amongst us. And so our song today, Casting Crowns, got it very much right. Oh, what I would do to have the kind of strength it takes to stand before a giant with just a sling and a stone, surrounded by the sound of a thousand warriors shaking in their armor, wishing they'd have the strength to stand. You see the difference between paralysis when you fear man and fear public opinion and feel your past and feel fear failure versus when you fear God and you can face down Goliath. Now, if unholy alliances don't trip us up, if emotional traps don't derail us, if various threats don't paralyze us, don't worry, Satan has a lot more arrows in his quiver and he is more tenacious than you can ever imagine. And so number five, Satan is willing to try dirty tricks, dirty tricks to try to frustrate the work. Satan will try dirty tricks to try to frustrate 
the work. Look at verse 5. We'll start in verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed counselors. Before there was ever New Jersey, they had it there. Right there. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate God's purposes, their purposes. Did you know that Satan has lawyers on retainer? Did you know he has old Weasley worm tongue working to twist our words? We can say it right and straight and true, and they can twist it and make it into something unpalatable and unchristlike. He has a thousand dirty tricks up his sleeve, and that's okay. Don't dismay when Satan sends them your way. This is just an attempt to frustrate us. Don't give in to that attempt. When facing Satan's dirty tricks, we need to be prayerful and we need to be persevering. When you're facing Satan's dirty tricks, you need to be prayerful and you need to be persevering. Because when God has called us to a purpose, when we are united in that purpose as one man, and when we lean on the Lord and not our own prowess, we will see progress even if every dirty trick in the book is thrown at us. If you read church history and you read the Bible, if you find praying, persevering, saints who are united in Jesus and one another, you find that whatever the obstacle it couldn't stop the work of God. Well, if dirty tricks won't work, <laughs> he's got more options. He goes to number six on our list. Satan will try to use legal and governmental roadblocks to slow down God's work. Satan will use legal and governmental roadblocks to try to slow down the work of God in our generation. Look again. We'll start at verse 4, but I want to pay particular attention to verse 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid, and they bribed those counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. For how long? For all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The Samaritan tried roping in Cyrus's government. They tried roping in Darius's government. They tried roping in Ahasuerus's government. They tried any government official of whoever was in charge and whatever administration was in charge until every dirty trick they could do legally and governmentally was put against the work of God. That temple still got built eventually. Many a church has had zoning problems when they tried to make room for more worshipers. And they were told no. Uh, many a Christian organization has had ridiculous, unwarranted, unprecedented legal action put against them to try to drain their resources, to, to burn up their time, uh, to sap their morale. It happened in Zerubbabel's day. It happens in Ezra's day. It happened in Nehemiah's day. Do not be surprised if it happens today. Don't lose your mind that there's a problem. You have a God who's bigger than your problem. And this is not new to the people of God or the work of God. All right? And so that brings us to point seven. Point seven of the devil's dirty dozen. Meant to delay, meant to discourage, meant to disrupt so that God's servants stop doing God's work in that generation. I want us to notice in point seven that Satan is tenacious in seeking to thwart God's work. He is absolutely tenacious in seeking to thwart God's work. Look at these kings again. Start in verse 4 and go down to verse 7. And you're going to see this is a span of, of, of many, 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 many years and many, 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 many different governments. Okay? Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days, first king of Cyrus, king of Persia. He was who was sitting there then. And then after him, Darius, king of Persia. And after him, Ahasuerus. And after him, Artaxerxes. And you're seeing all these different governments come and go and what didn't come and go. Satan's dirty tricks trying to get his hooks in government to slow the work of God. The adversary sent adversaries under the reigns of Cyrus, under the reigns of Darius, under the reigns of Ahasuerus, all the way to King Artaxerxes. Now, Ahasuerus is another name for Xerxes. You have Xerxes, and then later you have Artaxerxes. So if you do the math on this, you're going to see from Silas's edict in 538 all the way to Artaxerxes in 450, there's almost 100 years of unbroken opposition where every legal and governmental trick is thrown against the work of God. The people of God had to be persevering, didn't they? They had to be prayerful, didn't they? This is like almost 100 years. It doesn't matter who's in charge, which administration comes in, comes out. You eventually have a revolution. Oh. 
and yet you still have legal and governmental roadblocks. Satan is tenacious. Satan is relentless. And so we must be persevering. We must be unrelenting. We must be steadfast and unmovable in the Lord Jesus Christ or we will give up and give in and the work of God will stop in our day. It won't stop forever because He's sovereign, but we can miss all that God would do and could do if we were a people of faith and faithfulness. Satan was not only restless and devious, but Satan will also seek to find allies who could be our foes when we face, so, so that we will face, if Satan can bring a bunch of, uh, of allies to his side, uh, we will face the widest possible field of opposition to the work of God, putting us in an unenviable position, which is point eight. Satan will attempt to muster a coalition if he can. He will, he will try to get strange bedfellows together. He will muster a coalition to thwart the work of God. I want you to look at all these hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names that hipsters don't name their kids. Maybe they haven't read Ezra. But here we go. Look at all the foes God's people faced in the days of Artaxerxes. Verse 7, In the days of Artaxerxes, there was some guy named Bishlam, and another guy named Mithradath, and a guy named Tabil, and all the rest of their guys, all the rest of their associates, and all of them wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic, and it was translated. And then there's Rahum, who's the commander. He has some military side of things there. And then there's Shishmai, the scribe. They've got the, the, the sort of religious legal people involved. And they wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes as, as king as follows. And when they write the letter, they include as many people. Look, everybody's against these, these, these God's people. Everybody's against them. You've got Ruin, the commander, Shishmai, the scribe, the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Aspinar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria, and the rest of the province beyond the river. Everybody's against the people of God. Just read the letter. The legal letter sent to the legal power who seemingly could decide the fate of history. Friends, there were more of Pharaoh's soldiers than there were Israelite warriors when God put the Israelites between the Red Sea and a Pharaoh seeing red, weren't there? They were massively outnumbered. Friends, Goliath was way bigger than David the boy when they faced each other in that field. Um, when, when Gideon had forces, God so widowed the forces of Gideon to where he had just a handful against the Midianite multitude. God made it so lopsidedly unfair that there's no way they could win if God wasn't in it. I'm going to tell you that often in the battles we're going to fight for Jesus in our generation, we are going to be outmanned, we are going to be outgunned, and we are going to be outresourced. But that's okay. God can do a lot with five smooth stones and a humble person with a sling. You read your Bible? Could take down giants. In the hand of the living God, who can stop us? In our own hands, we're entirely defeatable. Entirely defeatable. If we're leaning on our denomination and our organization and our galvanization and our charismatic pastor, you had to hire him, but you know, you get that guy. You will not see the work of God advance. Apart from me, you can do nothing of value, Jesus says. Hmm. So let's take a page from a Marine. Chesty Puller was a famous Marine, probably the most famous Marine. And in this first Marine division was, was surrounded at the Chosen Reservoir. And so the army asked for help. The Marines came and they went to go rescue them. And there was this whole conflict in the Korean conflict. It got very rough, got very sad, got very difficult. And Chesty Puller turned and he said to his men, Men, they are in front of us. They are behind us. And we are outflanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us at least 29 to 1. Boys, they can't get away from us now. <laughs> and they won. And they won. And they won. Why can't the people of God remember that greater is He who is for us than he who is against us? Do not listen to this sermon on Satan and cower. Listen on this sermon on Satan and be sober. There's a real enemy and there's a greater God and we better stop trifling with our own power and leaning on His. Now, one of the ways the deceiver will try to hinder us and rally others to his cause is point nine in our sermon today. Satan will try to besmirch our intentions to get others hostile to God and His work. Satan will try to besmirch our intentions 
to try to keep others from God and His work. You see, we proclaim a gospel of grace, and there are some today that say it's hate speech. Well, we share the truth that God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, that all who put their faith in Him shall never perish. And others say that is narrow-minded and religiously bigoted. Right? Oh, we're surprised when our loving sharing of the gospel of God's grace is twisted somehow into something it never was intended to be. But friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Look at how the adversary twisted the supposed intentions of the Israelites. The Israelites came by faith. They left the gardens of Babylon to go to where there was nothing and desolation to the glory of God, and they went to rebuild the temple of God and listen to how the world twisted that story. Look at verse 12. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem and they are uh, rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing its foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay. Tribute, custom, toll, and royal revenue will be impaired. You're going to lose money on this deal. You better not let them build their temple. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, we're the goody-goodies, and we really have the king's best interest at heart. No, no, we weren't conquered people that you've stuck here who we hate and couldn't wait for you to die. We're, we're good guys. It would not be fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send to inform the king out of totally benevolent purposes. We only care about you. In order that a search may be made, just look in the library, in the book of the records of your fathers, and you're going to find in the book of the records, you're going to learn that Jerusalem was a rebellious city. It was hurtful to kings and provinces, and sedition was stirred up in it from a long time ago. And that is why the city was destroyed. And we make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, then you will have nothing. You'll have no possession. They're going to they're become a power again in the province beyond the river. Now, there's a kernel of truth in this hit job, isn't there? There's a kernel of truth in what they're saying. Because in the past, when the Israelites were not following God, some of their kings did these very things, and that led them into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. They had some wicked kings who did some wicked things and, and provoked Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar took them out. And I'm going to tell you, this brings us to point 10. And for most Christians, this is the most popular point that Satan uses to hold you back from service to God. Point 10 is probably the most effective to most people I know. Satan will throw our past failings upon us to get us to hinder God's present work among us. He will use our past to keep us from the present work He wants us to do. Listen again. Verse 14. Now because we eat of the salt of the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. Just look back at their past. And you're going to find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up from it from old. Hey, friends, he's right. That's true. The Israelites didn't always do what God wanted them to do, and that's why they were taken away. Now, this is where he's wrong. The past failings of God's people did not keep them from present obedience. And yet, when you witness to some people today, the past failings of other Christians are going to be used against you. If you speak to a Muslim today, and I've done this before, and you eventually get to a point where it's all about Jesus and they're starting to get it, you know what they will often talk about? They'll talk about the Crusades. And they'll say, wait a minute. People who called them Christians came to our homelands in opposition to Christ and His teachings. They don't listen to that. <laughs> you know, Jesus didn't say take up arms and burn their farms. He said, love your neighbor and <laughs> share my gospel, right? But, but they'll say... These men came in the name of Christ with, with shields that had the cross on them and, and they burned and ransacked our cities and they wouldn't want to hear about Jesus because long ago someone really messed it up claiming to be proclaiming Jesus. Uh, sometimes you'll talk to somebody about the Gospel and you'll really get the conversation going and, and you'll talk about the liberty we have in Christ and, and right away Satan will say, well, what about southern Christians and slavery? How's that work with the liberty you talk about in Christ? So some other Christian somewhere in the past is kind of messing it up right now in the present. Um, you speak to someone about God's loving plan between a woman and a man for life together, how there's equality of worth and yet there's distinction in role, and somebody will point to some misogynist and his justification of marital brutality by a misapplication of a Bible verse and a black eye. You see, Satan loves to use our past failings, sometimes not even our failings, but failings of others, 
but he loves to do it when it's our failings. When you say, I'm going to step into the ring and God's told me to be an elder, God's told me to serve in this way, God's told me to do this, God's, and then he'll say, but not you, because when you were 15, you did that. Right? When God is prompting you to service and you go, but wait a minute, in the past, I wasn't perfect. I think God probably knew that before he called you into service, right? But Satan's just checking to see if you understand your theology very well. Satan loves to use our past failings to hinder our present victories. If you're putting your hand to the plow, the enemy's going to tell you, look back. Look back. Look back at who you were and where you were, and then you're going you're gonna to make a rest of that line. That's why the Scriptures tell you to put your hand to the plow and not look back, to keep your eyes firmly fixed on that point in the horizon of where God wants you to be, and you will make a long, straight, perfect furrow that can have a lot of things grow in it for the glory of Christ. Scripture tells us it's on our sign out front, I think, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we keep our eyes firmly fixed on the Savior, He can guide our present behavior. If we're always looking at our past failings, we're never going to get out of the gate to the present obedience. We cannot change the past, but we can choose in this present, and it will impact the future. Don't listen to the brimstone whisperer. Listen to the voice of truth. For the truth shall set you free. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says, but Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Satan will rain down condemnation, and Jesus says there's no condemnation for those that are in me. Who's telling you the truth, and which voice are you listening to? We sang about the voice of truth, and you live in a sea of lies. Listen to the voice of truth. Now, if Satan can't discourage us, if he can't disparage us until we're so depressed that we just give up on God's work, if he can't sue us to stop us, Satan may unsheathe his sword to physically harm us. He may do it with haste and with violence. And that brings us to point 11. Satan will use haste and force if he has to. He will use haste and force if he has to. Satan will use haste and force if he can to thwart the work of God. He will use haste and force if he can, to thwart the work of God. Look at verse 23. When the king, uh, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in what? In haste. They were delighted. They ran. They came. Look, we got them now. We can shut them down now. And they came swift and fast and hard, and they rode in to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power, put down that sword. Well, I'm not putting it. You know, put down that trowel. Put down that rock. No, smack. Put that... Haste and force. They showed up fast, they showed up hard, and they showed up willing to bear arms if need be. Now I'm going to tell you, in most of church history, it's often a rarity in our milieu for Satan to use force, but he sure does like to use haste. He'll come at you fast and hard, lightning quick before you knew what hit you. We've been privileged. We haven't necessarily experienced a lot of the force side. Other Christians have. We haven't, but he uses the haste side. Swift blows. It will, the inbox of our enemy artillery comes in so fast, and you wonder, I haven't even cleared yesterday's problem, and I have three more. How are we ever going to get this done for Jesus? The Bible says, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You don't reap a harvest if you, if you give up. Satan doesn't want that harvest, so he's going to work on every angle until you give up. Friends, in church history, there have been saints who have resisted the point of shedding blood. But one thing we've learned is the blood of the martyrs is almost always the seed of the church. The more it's oppressed, the more it grows. Satan knows this is a losing strategy, so he applies it very selectively. Thank God that force is less frequent than haste in our current context. Amen? Thank God for that. But you know what? Either way, you need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who remained resolute in what was face of certain death. These young men, they, they fearlessly faced down Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what they said. If we are thrown into the fiery furnace, the God we save is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king, but even if he doesn't, even if we burn up today, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up for us. We must understand that as we withstand Satan's dirty dozen, there is hope that we must cling to. 
Even when Satan is winning and the wicked are grinning, we still have hope. We have an unmovable hope. And that's our final point today. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of hope. Verse uh, number 12. For a season, it can seem that Satan halts the work of God among us. But that is never the end of the story. For a season, it can seem that Satan is halting the work of God among us, but please know that is never the end of the story. He is building an unshakable kingdom. I want you to know in our passage today, for 16 years, the work of God stopped because of this situation. For 16 years, not a brick was laid, not a stone was laid, not a priest laid or prayed. The work of God stopped. But I want you to know that cessation was not the same as termination. There will be times when Satan seems to be winning and when God's plan seems to be stalling. But Hebrews 12.28 is correct. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's plan will stand no matter what device of the devil or plan of man is sent against it. When things go sideways, understand that Jesus is still seated on His throne and He still has sovereign control over the entire universe. Friends, did you know that though the very gates of hell may assault it, they will never overcome it when it comes to the will of God, when it comes to the work of God, when it comes to the kingdom of God. The very gates of hell may assault it, but they will not overcome it. I want you to be encouraged when you have those seasons where it seems like Satan has halted the progress. That is never the end of the story. You can flip to the end of the story. And there's a defeated Satan getting his just due in hell. And there is a glorious Jesus who's receiving praise from every person who has chosen His grace. And there's a city where there's no crying and there's no tear and there's no death and there's no pain. I have read the end of the book and the author of that book is faithful and true. Do you know Him? I want to leave you with one Scripture. Here it is. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. You can't make the tomatoes come up faster. You can't make the avocados bare. Take seven years when you plant an avocado tree. We've talked about that missionary eating my avocados that I planted that I never got to eat. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we can turn to any page in Scripture and we can see the truth of Scripture. We can hear the voice of truth. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would speak to us from the voice of truth. I pray that at least one of these dozen truths would, would stick with us and resonate with us. I pray that we would be discerning and not deceived. I pray that we would know the difference between when we can work with people and when we can't because it leads to an unholy compromise. Lord Jesus, I pray that You give us wisdom that we would not be discouraged and stop the work, but in the discouragement we would pray harder and persevere more and we would patiently wait to see You move mountains by prayer. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a persevering, effective, fruitful, productive congregation for Jesus. I pray, Lord Jesus, that those who are discouraged today, who the enemy is throwing their past before them, to keep them from present service, that they would hear the voice of truth and they would choose in the present to be faithful, that there would be a future of much glory for Jesus and their neighbor coming to Jesus and their children and grandchildren loving and worshiping Jesus. Lord, we thank You that You're a God not of second chances or third chances, but over and over and over and over and over You are a patient God. We thank You for Your patience to us. And Lord, help us to remember You're also a jealous God that we might not needlessly provoke, but instead we might actively seek Your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.